This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the summer of 2017's edition of Radio Parallax Light. We say that, of course, with a wink in the eye, which does not translate well into radio. Let's start off by noting that we suggested on last week's program that we would make every effort to see Letters from Baghdad, a documentary about Gertrude Bell, often called the female Lawrence of Arabia. Alas, I didn't make it. Naturally, it's playing in the Bay Area like six times a week. That might be a slight exaggeration. It's probably more like 10. But at any rate, I'm still going to make an effort to take it in, in part so that I can report upon it to you, dear listener. Uh, I did, however, take in Dunkirk in its stead and would agree with its four-star ratings, four out of four, but uh, would not necessarily agree that it is a truly great film. There's a great deal to like about it, but uh, character development and dialogue are not necessarily among them. Like many movies today, it apparently relies very heavily upon computer-generated imagery, which in this case is quite spectacular. But you know, some of us old-fashioned folks sometimes crave just a little more. I mean, you could... (laughs) I'm not sure how much dialogue there is in the entire movie, but I'm pretty sure it takes up about, oh, 10 minutes. The movie runs 106 minutes, so it's what you'd call action-packed. I don't want to discourage you. It's a worthy effort, and if you're inclined to go out and take in a movie this summer, uh, that would be a good choice. If for no other reason than it provides a lesson on a remarkable episode in World War II where the British and French were pinned against the coast and some say perhaps let go by the Wehrmacht as Hitler had every advantage yet did not press his attack. Some say he was fearing a trap. Others think that perhaps he was going to work out a deal with Britain. Uh, it's, it's, it's a mystery that they don't go into in the movie, but after seeing it, like seeing so many historical pictures, uh, uh, I was prompted to go to Wikipedia and other sources. I hate to start with Wikipedia. Let's just say other sources on the web and uh, learn quite a bit about the history. As always, we urge you to do likewise. In the last week, of course, the Trump saga continues to roll on. Spokesman Sean Spicer has fled the nest to be replaced by a Goldman Sachs banker and notorious New York Wheeler dealer. What a surprise. The president has expressed his dissatisfaction with his own attorney general. I mean, we all like it when the boss backs us up, don't we? But rather than go into all of that uh, in any kind of length, I think instead what I'm going to do is talk about Trump, which we seem to have to do, I think, on a weekly basis, by referring to the Rolling Stone February 23rd issue early in the Trump administration that took a look at American values by the numbers. And I think these may suffice for our statistics of the day. Rolling Stone took a look at how Trump's agenda is, in fact, at odds with popular opinion and his own voters. For example, Americans are significantly worried about global warming. At least 64% of us are. And polling Trump voters, they find out that 61% of Trump's people want 
to require companies to reduce carbon emissions. 55% want to uphold or strengthen Obama's climate change policies. Trump's position, of course, is that he's abandoning the Paris Climate Agreement and has pushed to eliminate the, quote, harmful and unnecessary policies, unquote, of Obama's climate action plan. How about marijuana? 60% of Americans across the board favor legalization of recreational marijuana. There's no evidence that a minority of Trump voters take that position. Yet, Mr. Trump's position, at least coming through his Attorney General Jeff Sessions, is that good people don't smoke marijuana. Sessions added at his Senate hearing that we need a grown-up in charge of Washington to say marijuana is not the kind of thing that ought to be legalized. Regarding Obamacare, 58% of Americans want federally funded health insurance for all. Among Trump voters, 78% want to keep or tweak protections for pre-existing conditions, and 65% want to keep or tweak subsidies to buy health insurance. Trump's position, of course, is that he's signed an executive order on day one declaring it's the policy of my administration to seek the prompt repeal of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. They're still working on that over in the Senate, with John McCain apparently showing up with his newly diagnosed brain cancer to cast a vote in favor of pursuing its repeal. Our guess is that McCain doesn't have to worry about getting coverage, even for pre-existing conditions. Regarding gun control, 92% of Americans favor universal background checks. Oh, and by the way, 75% of Trump voters favor universal background checks. Trump's position, of course, is that he's repeatedly vowed to roll back Obama's executive extension of background checks. Regarding immigration, 80% of Americans favor letting undocumented immigrants stay here legally. Among Trump voters, 60% favor letting undocumented immigrants stay here legally. Trump, in the meantime, has signed executive orders to build his wall and to target millions of undocumented immigrants for deportation. And speaking of foreign workers, the Department of Homeland Security announced last week that it would expand the number of visas available to temporary foreign workers by 15,000 for the remainder of the year. That's a 45% bump in the number normally issued. This is for the H-2B visas. They're used for low-wage seasonal workers in the tourism, landscaping, and construction industries. Businesses have complained that the tight labor market has made recruiting difficult. Roughly 60,000 H-2B visas are offered to temporary workers each year, with 33,000 available for the summer season. Eligible businesses must show that they will suffer a financial loss if they aren't allowed to hire foreign workers. If you're keeping score, President Trump has in fact used the H-2B visas to hire workers at his golf clubs and at his Mar-a-Lago resort. Curiously, in spite of the fact that we have to use H-2B visas to make sure that, um, well, the tourist industry and construction industry, to say nothing of the landscaping industry, can get by, which I would say shows some sort of labor shortage, doesn't it? Writing in Slate.com, Daniel Gross noted last week that U.S. companies have literally forgotten how to compete for employees. The demand for workers, says Gross, is so high right now that the airlines have canceled flights, home builders have slowed down construction, and farmers feel that crops will go unharvested, all for the lack of qualified hands. 
There are currently 5.7 million job openings in the U.S., twice the level of eight years ago, and the unemployment rate is very low, 4.4%. Given these conditions, from the old supply and demand of Econ 1A, wages should be rising sharply. Yet pay has hardly budged for most Americans. Employers don't appear to be willing to increase wages to attract candidates. So what's up with that? Speaking of labor statistics, <laughs> which is not something we do a great deal of, we would like to point out, however, that a new report by the National Bureau of Economic Research has found that men in their 20s worked 12% fewer hours in 2015 than in the year 2000, and that those working hours have been largely replaced by video gaming. Researchers note that many of these young men find more satisfaction in fantastical, immersive games like World of Warcraft than in working a minimum wage gig. Well, we have to admit it probably is more fun to wield those cyber machine guns than it is to ask somebody if they would like fries with that. But let's face it, one of them earns you a paycheck and the other does not. I was horrified to read what the managing editor of The Week magazine, Theudas Bates, had to say about some of this. He said that about five years ago, I had to make a difficult confession to my wife. I was addicted to killing zombies. Over the previous couple of months, I've been sucked in by a smartphone game that put me in the role of a warplane pilot in a post-apocalyptic world tasked with blasting the undead into smithereens from the sky. Eager to notch a new high score and and be rewarded with a powerful new in-game weapon, I massacred hordes of digital ghouls on my daily subway commute during bathroom breaks and TV ad breaks and while lying in bed wondering why I couldn't get to sleep. After my wife commented one night that I hadn't picked up a book in a few weeks, I decided to go cold turkey, delete the app, and promise myself I'd never download another video game. Mr. Bates notes in his editorial that tech firms are developing haptic suits that will let players feel what their on-screen avatar is experiencing, the recoil of a rifle, say, or the ground shaking as a tank passes nearby. Other companies are working in the charmingly named field of teledildonics, creating immersive, high-tech sexual experiences that include a sense of touch. Bates asked the question, when young men can bed beauties and save the planet without ever leaving their parents' basement, will any of them ever go to work? Writing about this in the Financial Times, Tim Hartford said that joblessness is usually a reliable predictor of misery. And so is living with relatives. And so is living with relatives, as nearly 70% of the young workforce dropouts do. Yet these basement-dwelling video gamers aren't miserable. In fact, The proportion of men under 30 saying they're very happy or pretty happy has risen to 89%, even as they turn their backs on reality. Now, some of this has to do with the aftermath of the still reverberating 2008 recession, which wiped out so many low-skill jobs. Writing in theweek.com, James Pethokoulos said that young men are probably turning to gaming because of their joblessness, not the other way around. Peter Suderman, writing in Reason.com, said, Don't be so sure about that, noting that when he recently played Mass Effect Andromeda, he led a mission to settle a galaxy while dealing with resource shortages, menacing aliens, and other complex problems. When I succeeded, he said, I earned clear rewards, such as points or virtual money. 
Today's video games are not just vivid and engrossing, they're purpose generators, offering a sort of universal basic income for the soul that not many real jobs do. And for all you gamers out there bound and determined to completely divorce yourselves from reality, there's some good news. This is GameSpace, an experimental online tool designed to help you find the next video game. Notes Douglas Heaven in New Scientist magazine. Like the rest of us, gamers can't keep up with all the new titles constantly being published. He quotes James Ryan of UC Santa Cruz as saying, The accumulation is ridiculous. Apple's App Store has around 800,000 games, with several hundred new ones added every day. Even if they're great, many will get lost in the crowd. So Ryan and his colleagues at UC Santa Cruz developed GameSpace as a better alternative to the algorithms that give us tips. Great. <laughs> Moving ahead by leaps and bounds. And here's an item from New Scientist that I can't help but find a little disturbing. The author of the piece is, is apparently not disturbed. When he notes that AI Coach helps chatbots seem more human. Notes the piece, little clues make it obvious that Siri or Alexa are driven by artificial intelligences, but you might struggle to nail what gave the game away. A new AI can suss out the specifics. Given a snippet of dialogue between a chatbot and a human, the system, developed at McGill University, predicts how convincingly human you or I would rate the chatbot's response. In other words, it automates the Turing test. This could help build what's described as better virtual assistance. The piece notes that today's chatbots are great for specific tasks, ordering a pizza, for example, or checking the weather, but try asking it if it's enjoying the weather. To make chatbots more convincing, companies like Amazon use large teams of human testers as evaluators. But for firms with fewer resources, that's prohibitively expensive and time-consuming. Would it be possible to cut humans out of the process altogether? Well, to find out, good people at McGill evidently designed a an AI that automatically rates how human-like a piece of chatbot-generated dialogue sounds. They ask groups of volunteers to rate hundreds of Twitter conversations, some generated by bots, others by people, according to their human qualities. They then train their neural networks on these ratings. You know, I don't think we need better chatbots out there convincing us that they're human especially when they call us and try to get, us, to get us to say yes on tape so they can book us an expensive cruise in the Caribbean. We talked about that a few weeks ago. A little bit closer to home on the June 10th issue, a new scientist offered a series of cartoons which were described as our new human-like robot available in seven different designs. And they had seven different images titled, respectively, Unsettling, Disturbing, Weird, Creepy, Horrible, Terrifying, and Nightmarish. And speaking of nightmarish, these same tech companies that are working so hard uh, to not just addict us to them, but to supposedly make our lives better, seem bound and determined to use this new technology of drones to deliver us stuff. We've, predicting, we've been predicting for years this is going to result in numerous deaths, particularly when drones interact with air traffic. But um, putting a dent in the superhighway toward more drones delivering us stuff is this little datum uh, <laughs> based on a study done at NASA's Langley Research Center in Virginia. 
The study's purpose was to prove that Langley's acoustics research facilities could contribute to NASA's wider efforts to study drones. What came out of this were results indicating that the extra irritation the 38 subjects in the experiment found when listening to drones correlated to a car being suddenly twice as close as it had been before. It was not clear why drones sounded so annoying to the participants. They didn't know they were listening to drones, and they were unaware of the study's research focus. They only knew they were hearing sounds related to, quote, the future of transportation, unquote. It's speculated that one reason for the difference might be how slowly most commercially available drones move. A drone takes a lot longer to pass by than a car traveling down a residential street. And a common complaint was how the drone sounds seemed to loiter. So one good thing coming out of this, I guess, is that they're realizing that um, drones, if they're going to be used to deliver stuff, need to be significantly quieter than ground vehicles. Personally, we approve of some people's plans to shoot them down if they appear over their property. I hope earlier that our stats on Trump would suffice for the stats of the day, but doggone it, I've got at least one more. Evidently, President Trump's 2020 re-election campaign has racked up more than $677,000 in legal consulting fees between April and June. That's according to new Federal Election Commission filings. As the Trump administration deals with the rapidly expanding investigation into possible collusion between the 2016 campaign and Russia. This sum includes a $50,000 payment to the law firm of Alan Ferderfoss, the New York-based criminal attorney now representing Donald Trump Jr. And speaking of Russia and, (laughs) and the democratic process, it's rather sad to note that apparently the Russians once again adore Joseph Stalin. This comes from Viktoras Denisenko, which notes that the Levada Center, an independent pollster, recently asked 1,600 Russians to name the top 10 most outstanding people of all time and all nations. Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin came in first, followed closely by Russia's current president, Vladimir Putin. The results weren't surprising. As soon as Putin came to power in 1999, the semi-official rehabilitation of the dictator began. Stalin became the face of the Soviet Union's victory over Nazi Germany in World War II, which despite massive losses on the Russian side, is today depicted as Russia's greatest achievement. Russians are encouraged to see themselves as defenders of the world against fascism. And Putin has used this rhetoric to justify his invasion of Ukraine, calling the pro-Western forces fascists and ultranationalists. Denisenko notes that these depressing survey results show that the Kremlin's relentless propaganda repeated on talk shows, in movies, and in school books has been extraordinarily successful. Post-Soviet Russians know all about Stalin's crimes, but they have been conditioned to excuse them. An interesting political development closer to home. It turns out that a number of records related to the JFK assassination have been released this week, as they are supposed to be released in 2017. We're going to monitor what Jefferson Morley, former Radio Parallax guest, has to say about that, because nobody has been more up on the topic of what is still being held and what could and should be released than Jeff Morley. And we highly recommend his website, which he actually moderates, jfkfacts.com. That's a story we will continue to monitor. 
And for more and for more information on that, we recommend our archives at radioparallax.com, specifically our interview with Jefferson Morley about what was still being kept secret. And we have tried to tantalize you a bit about um, about that topic, which still uh, reverberates with people of a certain age. Actually, it reverberates with people of, of all ages here in America. I became very much reinterested in this case back in 1991 because Newsweek had a cover story on it suggesting why Oliver Stone's new movie shouldn't be trusted. You may have noticed that Hollywood is not always very accurate when it comes to historical portrayals of events. The fact that Newsweek found it necessary to make a cover story out of this, advising you not to trust the movie, really piqued my interest. Since JFK is in fact a very good movie and should have won the Oscar that year, and probably would have were it not for direct lobbying by people such as David Bellin, former attorney for the Warren Commission, who took out an ad in Variety suggesting that it would be un-American to vote for JFK as best picture. Well, suffice it to say, we're going to have some stuff, we're going to have some interesting things to add to this discussion uh, in the near future, no matter what comes out of these records. And you can bet one thing that I think you can bet one thing, which is that a lot of the really key records are going to be held back. And of course, if the act back in 1963 was that of a a deranged man acting alone, you just have to ask why it is all these volumes of records about certain personnel, including people in the Central Intelligence Agency, must still be held back from the public. All right, and since we're going back to the 1960s, let's go let's go fast forward from 1963 to 1967. We mentioned on last week's program, somewhat to the horror of this correspondent, that 50 years have passed since the issuance of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, one of the great albums of all time, I think most people agree. And during that same eventful year of 1967, something took place closer to home here, specifically in San Francisco, which is commonly referred to as the Summer of Love. The week, as it so often does, has an excellent summary of um, that event of 50 years ago, and I I think it's worth quoting from it for those of you who um, did not experience it. Although I do have to add with sadness that even though I remember the summer of 67 very well, I did not quite experience the summer of love despite living just 37 miles away from it. Sneaking away at age 14 proved to be just a little bit more than I could manage. At any rate, in answer to the question, how did the summer of love begin, the week noted that in January of that year, San Francisco's nascent hippie community held a gathering of tribes called the Human Being. Get it? human being, in the city's Golden Gate Park. At least 20,000 people came, many long-haired and wearing outlandish costumes, to protest a new California law banning the drug LSD, which was freely distributed to the crowd. The beatnik poet Allen Ginsberg led a mass om chant, while the LSD guru Timothy Leary invited the protesters to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Music was provided by local psychedelic rock bands, including the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead. It generated national publicity. That spring, a self-appointed hippie council invited the youth of America to San Francisco to experience the magic for themselves, calling during what is now called the Summer of Love. By the way, that term hippie 
was invented by San Francisco Chronicle columnist and former Sacramento resident Herb Cain, who dubbed these young bohemians hippies, a slang term for someone who is hip or in the know. It should be noted that these hippies were an assortment of like-minded tribes based in the Bay Area. Ken Kesey, the head of the Merry Pranksters, toured the country in a graffiti-covered school bus driven by Neil Cassidy, who makes quite a uh, prominent appearance in Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Kerouac, William Burroughs, Cassidy, Allen Ginsberg were all part of the scene. Ken Kesey was offering free acid tests. There's, we were provided with LSD-laced Kool-Aid and given a diploma if you passed. I do have to confess that at this late a date, 50 years later, I have still never tried LSD. And I still have no plans to do so. Thank you, Mr. McMillan. At any rate, the briefing in the week asked how many people came. The answer was, starting at spring break, some 75 to 100,000 young people converged on San Francisco, inspired by the prospect of a new way of life centered on free love, communal living, and psychedelic drugs. At the epicenter of the counterculture was the down-at-the-heels district of Haight-Ashbury, which had been colonized by a number of alternative communities. Scott McKenzie's ballad, San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair, was a siren call to youth. In fact... John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas actually was the person who wrote San Francisco, and he basically gave it as a gift to Scott McKenzie for reasons that are, I think, unclear. The week notes that mainstream America watched aghast as TV and newspapers provided daily coverage of the antics of the flower children. The biggest of the summer's many gatherings was the Monterey Pop Festival, which took place in June. It was the first major festival of its type, where a crowd of 60,000 people witnessed performances by Jimi Hendrix, Otis Redding, Jefferson Airplane, and another local band, Big Brother and the Holding Company, fronted by singer Janis Joplin. I mentioned some weeks back that we were going to bring somebody on this program that attended the Monterey Pop Festival, my good friend Sammy Roy, but Sammy informed me that he was there in 66. <laughs> so he couldn't directly comment upon it, but we have to bring Sam on the show because he's he's a fun guy. And he um, did tell me that, I guess the year before, uh, Big Brother and Janis Joplin were there, and he freely admitted that Janis Joplin scared the hell out of him. Of course, at the time, he was like 16. It should be noted, in case you're unaware, that the, the work of the hippies, <laughs> which sowed the seeds of... of sort of a revolution in America, expressed contempt for the cultural norms of 1950s America and encouraged spiritual questing, sexual liberation, and experimenting with drugs, also a rejection of materialism. Asked, were the hippies political? The answer that came back was, to an extent, I would say, yeah, to a large extent. The week said the period was politically charged, the Vietnam War was raging, and the civil rights movement had given way to inner-city riots, among the hippies, political aims were mixed with broader lifestyle protests. Actor Peter Coyote, co-leader of a group called The Diggers, later recalled that he was interested in two things, overthrowing the government and screwing, adding, they went together seamlessly. And it wasn't all, it wasn't all uh, love and happiness. The streets of San Francisco were filled with teenagers with no money, no food, no plans. And by July, crime and violence were soaring, and there were frequent clashes between hippies and police. 
By the fall, most of the young people went back to college or returned home. The final question was, did hippies change the world? And the the answer was, in the short term, no. But there's no denying the transformative effect of the summer of love on mainstream society. Left an indelible imprint on popular music, how people dressed and wore their hair, and more generally, people's perspectives. Hippie enthusiasms have spread out across the Western world, including drug use, sexual openness, blue jeans, environmentalism, yoga, meditation, organic food, and vegetarian diets. What was once the counterculture is now part of the culture. William Hedgepeth, who was a young reporter, went undercover to write about the summer events, explained, Consciousness is irreversible. I never wore a suit again. I wish I could say that. Anyway, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.